Welcome to episode 69, Using Mindfulness and CBT to Reduce Anxiety with High Achieving Teens, featuring Nicole Burgess, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Nicole Burgess, uh, and she will be talking about using mindfulness to reduce anxiety with high achieving teens. Nicole, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here, Beth. Wonderful. Um, Nicole Burgess is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Indianapolis, Indiana, and she is an empowerment coach for female entrepreneurs as well. She specializes with high anxiety in teens and women and works usually regarding perfectionism and pretty high ideals and and working through some of the challenges associated with anxiety and perfectionism. Um, Nicole, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to have this specialization? Yeah, so I have been a therapist now for, it's hard to believe, but over 15 years. And so through the journey, you know, as a marriage and family therapist, I started out working with littler kids and families. And then I really started to enjoy more of the teenagers because I believe there are futures. And I recognize so much about that teenage years of just a lot of anxiety comes up and parents not knowing what to do with that. And so I started to specialize in that. And then again, a lot of my adult clients, they came in with anxiety. So I continue just to hone in on working specifically with anxiety. Yes, depression is there and there's definitely some trauma stuff that comes in. And then incorporating not only the cognitive behavioral techniques, but really bringing in a lot of mindfulness because I use that in my personal life. And I've just watched um, the people shift and change, both parents and kids, uh, working these procedures and techniques over the years. And it's just been a lot of fun. Great. Um, Thank you for for sharing your expertise with us. It sounds like one of your passions is really working with adolescents and helping them not only feel more in control and feel better about themselves, but also launch successfully to be creative, productive um, individuals in society. Absolutely. And if, you know, my thought process is if we can stop it from becoming a severe mental illness sooner, so it doesn't go into adulthood, then this is it. The kids are now, they've got the tools, the teens have the tools to, yeah, really launch, go to college, become these young, thriving adults, and they know what they can do when anxiety does come up or fears come up. Absolutely. So why don't we start there uh, talking about just adolescents in general? Um, what are some pieces of information that we should know about the developing brain in adolescence and how it's different than adults? Well, it's a lot of fun. I think, you know, research, we're getting more and more of it. And one of the, the books that I reference a lot re- with my families that I work with is called The Teenage Brain, A Neuroscientist's Survival Guide to Raising Adolescents and Young Adults. And it's by Dr. Frances Jensen. And in this book, you know, she really shares how the brain is developed from back to front. So that means that frontal part of the brain, it is not fully developed or connected until the mid-20s. And the thing is, the frontal part of our, the frontal lobes, they're the most complex, and they make up more than 40% of the brain's total volume. So as we know our teenagers, right, this is where all the executive functioning takes place, where they have the insight judgment, where they can think abstractly and do the planning. This is also the space in our brain that we do, we assess risk and danger. 
And since it's the last place to connect, this is why we see teens behave in ways that sometimes leave adults really baffled because they take these risks that can be life-threatening. It's also where, you know, we see these mood swings, the irritability, their inability to focus, to follow through, and even to connect with adults. It's all due to that frontal part is not fully there yet. And so we also know what fires together, wires together. So it's the more that information is repeated or relearned, those neurons become stronger. They create that pathway. And those pathways of neurons and synapses, when they get activated, there is this excitation that happens within um, that pathway. And then whether that the excitation comes from inside or outside the brain, then all of a sudden new pathways are beginning to form. And that is the key element of learning, the novel things, which is really cool about the teen brain because teens typically take more risk than we do as adults, right? Sometimes healthy, sometimes not so much. But because of that, they're learning all of these new novel and exciting things and they form all these great connections. That's where also the neuroplasticity piece comes in. During this adolescent age, you know, they're learning things faster. Gray matter is either getting stronger in specific areas or it's being eliminated as that brain continues to grow and change. It sheds the neurons that are not being used. And it's also the a time for teens when they're actually just more vulnerable because of all the changes that are happening in the brain. Whereas an adult, right, we've already got our full brain, but that doesn't mean that as adults, we can't learn new things. We just do it in different parts of the brain versus as a teenager. So one of the things I think is really cool, um, what Dr. Jensen was talking about, is that each particular experience really shapes the structure and the functional organization of the brain. And that, again, is part of the theory of neuroplasticity. So the more stimulation and experience that happens, again, at a healthy level, not necessarily overstimulating, but at a healthy level, then the gray matter actually gets thicker there's a higher number of synapses and larger neurons, which again, that all goes back to the connections that form in the brain. And she also talked about um, brain's learning is at its peak efficiency as a teenager, which is really kind of amazing. And they're also really inefficient as well, though, in including attention, that self-discipline task completion and regulating their emotions. So she really encourages, you know, the parents of teenagers to make sure your mantra is one thing at a time. And that is something I definitely talk about with teenagers as well. When they are, they're trying to multitask or listening to music and they've got YouTube videos going on and they're trying to study. It's like, no, 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 you're not going to be able to recall the information like the way that you want to. So let's just do one step at a time, one thing at a time. And I know for some kids, they get really frustrated with that. That's truly how their brain is made up right now at this age uh, that they're in. It's just really cool information, and they continue to learn more, of course. Um, it sounds like not only is that developing brain the thing that makes adults sometimes have trouble understanding the behavior choices, um, it's also the opportunity for us as clinicians to work in that space because their brain is still developing and it's more malleable. Yes, 
absolutely. And that's why when I'm working with the teenagers, you know, they're, when parents are confused about the intensity of the emotion, we used to talk about at least what I learned about years ago was, oh, it's because of all these hormonal changes that are happening in the teenager. And now it's more due to all the neuroscience that has gone on and the research that is being done on brain development. It's They're finding out, it's like, no, it's truly due to how the brain is developing, the changes that are happening in the brain. That's where the intensity of the emotions come from. And it's just really acknowledging that too, because Kids are much more susceptible to stressors, which I know we'll talk about um, in a little bit here, but they're more susceptible to these things during this stage because they don't have the full brain. When it comes to that kind of susceptibility, tell us more about what you mean. Like, What does that mean for teens uh, in their day-to-day? So if you think about it, I mean, at least, again, the where I live, the location of geographically where I live, there's different school kind of systems and they're all set up differently. And again, we'll, I know we'll talk more about this regarding culture, but part of this is there's expectations that can be put on kids. And so they start to take like, hey, we need to get, I don't know, an X amount GPA or this kind of grade. Kids can start to internalize that and that raises their stress level up. Like they need to somehow perform above and beyond and it sometimes it's, yeah, it's like, you know, looking at study habits, but that's being susceptible to additional stress versus they're already going through multiple classes per day, changing things. They're trying to navigate relationships or trying to navigate their relationship with their parents or caregivers. All of those external stresses add up and it can become overwhelming for kids. And the it's, it depends on how they know how to cope with it or not cope with it too, but it just makes them more susceptible. And then part of that risk level, when they are extremely stressed out, then they're raising the risk of getting involved in substances just to try and manage the stress level. It sounds like that you're, you're calling upon kind of the comorbidity of having adolescents that are in a high stress environment, maybe have decreased or diminished coping ability simply because they haven't necessarily developed them. And so they're more likely to go reaching for substances or potentially even unsafe behaviors to kind of counteract that and find a baseline. Correct. Again, it's all due to that brain development, right? They just don't have everything. Not all the things are connected yet where they can regulate that and they can think things through. That's part of when they have those, oh, what do I want to say, almost like safety nets in place where they can kind of bounce things off of parents or other adults to help them kind of weigh some of these things. Or if they've got other friends that can help them with that, that can decrease that. But if they don't have some of these support systems in place, yeah, it can put them a little more at risk because they're thinking, oh, I've got to do this all. Absolutely. So what are some of the symptoms of anxiety and how might adolescents differ from adults in their experience of anxiety? I'm not sure there's a lot of difference between adolescents to adults, at least from what I have experienced through the um, my clinical practice. But a lot of that, you know, you may see like these ruminating thoughts, they kind of get stuck in a thought loop. They really like to worry about what others maybe think of them. Very concerned about you know, their appearance or did they make somebody upset and they don't know about it. They may impact um, if their anxiety is really high or stress level is high. Sleep may be impacted, meaning difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, which then goes into having difficulty maybe concentrating, which will then impact memory. They're not going to be able to recall information as easily or remember things as easily when their stress level is really high. And 
the other thing about the adolescent, which is different than truly adulthood, is the cortisol levels. And those levels, as we know, they fluctuate over the 24 hours, and they're, they're typically the highest in the morning when we first wake up. But in mid to late adolescence, and it's odd, but, but especially for girls, they actually have a slightly higher um, than the normal adult population. So that cortisol level is a little higher. And so again, that is going to impact the emotions of stress, anxiety, anger. We don't. We know that when our cortisol levels are high, it impacts other parts of our body, meaning the adrenal glands. Um, it impacts, you know, uh, your organs inside when those levels stay really high. And during this time, we know that our amygdala is there to keep us safe. But if that gets triggered, it, then the kid's going to go back to the back part of their brain where it's that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And then adrenaline starts to go up. It goes to their extremities. It shuts down other parts of their organs. So they're in this state of alert, and they don't need to be. And the physical symptoms of anxiety, which that looks like adults for and kids, you know, you can have sweaty palms upset stomachs, uh, you know, can have headaches, you can get sick more often due to ongoing stress and anxiety. So like it's it's not only the thought processes that are impacted, it's physical symptoms as well when it comes to a lot of stress and anxiety. As you're talking about it, I can hear the challenges then that teens are facing, particularly in increasingly rigorous academic environments. Well, so you've got the Academics are totally different. So one thing I, I like to tell my parents is uh, don't compare your high school years to your kids. Social media pressure um, impacts kids' stress levels. The demands for getting into college is different than it used to be a decade or 20 years ago. Um, the academics themselves have changed. The extracurricular activities like sporting events, the number of hours that kids are now required to do it are almost every single day, if not multiple times a day during the week. So they're having to learn how to time management in smaller amount of chunks, which then of course is going to impact stress level. It's going to impact their sleep. It just, it impacts so many things. So it's making sure too, that your kid has some unstructured time that your teen has some sort of downtime so they can decompress from the day and from all the activities, all the stimulations. I think you bring in a really good point about um, parents needing to be aware of the challenges that are being faced by their kids and how it's different than what they were raised in, but then also making sure to, it sounds like model even for the, for their children, appropriate boundaries and kind of time off from all of the activities and, and all of that stress. Yes. And sometimes, and again, we'll talk about this more like as clinicians, how we can help parents, but so much of that is they do need to role model that. And I know parents that I have worked with, if, if a kid is typically anxious, I usually see that the parent, at least one of them is typically anxious. And so it's unlearning some of those old patterns so that they can have more, oh, for lack of a better word, control over what they think and they do. So there's a lot of unhealthy behaviors that do get learned, and it's knowing you can unlearn those too. Got it. Um, so what are, what are some of the thoughts uh, when we're looking at this from a cognitive perspective that you've seen or the research has shown underlie 
the um, anxious ruminations for teenagers. So if you're familiar with Dr. David Burns and Dr. Daniel Amons, they both created like these categories regarding cognitive distortions, or I call them unhelpful thoughts. Dr. Amon calls them ants, which is automatic negative thoughts. And Dr. Burns came up with like 10 of them. And I'm just going to list them out um, real quickly here. So he talked about the all or nothing thinking, overgeneralizing, mental filters, disqualifying the positive, really you're only going to focus on the negative or if something good happened, you stop. You're, you're trying to mind read your magnification of something or you minimize something. There's emotional reasoning, reasoning the should statements, labeling, personalization and blame. And Dr. Amen, he took like nine of them and there's a couple of them that are that are different. And one of them is called fortune telling or guilt beating, which it does include the shoulds, must, ought tos, have tos, that type of thinking, that type of thinking. And what I see for the kids who are high achievers or the girls that I work with, the high achieving ones, they often do the all or nothing thinking, meaning everything is all good or everything is all bad. There's no gray or in between or room for making mistakes and they can get stuck into that loop. And so like some of them will say, you know, I'm either perfect or I'm a total failure. And it's really working with them on beginning to shift that type of thinking, like giving some self-compassion and grace within that. I also see the always or never type of thinking. I will never get an A on a test. I will never get a date. This always happens to me. And then again, it's looking at, well, sometimes these things happen. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And yes, you didn't do well on this one test. And how many tests do you have throughout the the semester or the school year? Helping them really look more at the facts and look at it more of, uh, yeah, shifting the unhelpful thinking to more of the helpful. Another one that I often hear is they do a lot of personalization, meaning they take everything personally or they assign blame to themselves for what doesn't really appear like a logical reason, but they're like, it must be me, must be something I've done. So an example is assuming a friend is mad at you and you, you've just taken it on even though you have no idea whether they're truly mad at you or somebody else and they're just being quiet because they're mad. Or they didn't, you know, were thinking maybe that fun, that friend didn't have fun during a time that they spent together. And here again, it's like, well, talk to that person. Actually find out the facts. Is that true? Is it not? Because if you're, again, if you're taking it personal and you're also mind reading, it's not really a good thing or a healthy thing within the relationship. And that impacts both peer relationships and oftentimes I see that when kids think their parents are mad at them, when that parent may not be mad at them, they may have just had a bad day. And so they're kind of grumpy and more quiet and saying, oh, I'm just kind of irritated. They're like, oh, I must have done something. It's like, well, you don't know that. You've got to talk to them. The most famous one that I hear, not only with my teenagers, but my women that I work with, the adults, is the should statements. And that means you um, make a lot of statements about what you should do, what you ought to do, you must do, have to do. And then what that can then turn into applying that to other people in their lives. And they start to impose a set of expectations that are not likely going to be met, which again, is going to cause friendship issues, relationship issues in general, 
because if we're anytime we place an expectation on somebody else, we're saying that yeah, we can control what they do, think, and behave, and it's like no, you can't, which is going to leave you frustrated and disappointed if you go that way. That uh, phenomenon of the shoulds, I know colloquially, I don't know if you call it this, but we, I, I say in session, it sounds like you're shooting all over yourself. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. And and it is, I think it's something, of course, that we all do, but I, I can absolutely relate with seeing teenagers or young adults really struggle with how they should be and how difficult that is, even given their life stage, because their their primary job right now is to figure out who they are, not necessarily who they should be. And I could hear kind of where that, that wave, those two waves would crash into each other and could cause some discomfort. And it, and it does. And part of what, you know, my work with the teens and the adults, so their parents or caregivers, is helping them all recognize what those inner filters are, what those thoughts are. So first they need to have awareness that that's what they're even thinking. And that's the thoughts that kind of swirl around and they ruminate on and they get stuck on, which then causes the stressed out stuff. The other piece of this, though, is also sometimes it's the when I say culture, I don't mean like um, ethnicity. I'm talking about like school cultures. There is still a very big bias between how we speak to boys and girls growing up. And that then is going to impact how girls see themselves when they get into high school, how boys see themselves when they get into high school. You know, the, the typical, if a boy doesn't do so well on something like, oh, you're so brilliant, you're so intelligent. And with girls, they're told, oh, you know, you just try harder. They're not saying the same thing. And so girls start to grow up viewing that they're not as intelligent when that's not true. So we even have our own cultural or um, school biased and that impacts how kids are going to think about themselves, which again is going to get stuck as they become that adolescent into distorted thinking or unhelpful thoughts. And also if, if a parent or adults in that teen's life are really stuck on academics and that kid's achievements, of course, that's going to impact how the student or the, the teenager views themselves. Like, oh, I suck because I didn't get an A or I'm not at a 4.0, which means, you know, my parents aren't going to talk to me or I'm never going to get into a college or whatever that, that negative dialogue is. So it's being very mindful of what sort of attachment and feedback are the adults giving the child or the teen at this time as well. So it's not just about they need to perform. Yes, it's great to be a healthy striver, but it's not healthy to be going after these high things and achievements because you've got low self-worth, which is just going to, again, continue to drive the anxiety. When it comes to the experience of anxiety, I know one of, well, two of your preferred techniques are integrating mindfulness and cognitive behavior therapy. Um, which one of those would you like to start with and kind of sharing with us how you do that and how you approach um, the integration of those theoretical models and interventions? Yeah, I, you know, I actually I blend them so both together, I think on a regular basis, it's hard for me sometimes to separate them. But I'm going to start, I think mostly, yeah, I'll start with the the mindfulness piece of it. And if you're not familiar with it, which I know many people are, it's mindfulness is being present in the moment without judgment. 
and teaching a teen to just be in the moment can sometimes be challenging because they're like, but I've got all this stuff going on and I can't sit down. And it's reminding them that meditation can be sitting, it can be moving. Mindfulness also can mean breathing exercises. It can mean yoga. It could be taking a walk in nature and observing things where they just get back into their body and truly out of their head. And that's the biggest piece when anxiety is going on. Typically, the the teenager is very much up in their head and they've disconnected for that self-regulation in their body. Kind of the, I call it the warning symptoms or the warning signs like, oh, hey, my chest is starting to get really tight. Maybe I just need to take a pause and take a couple deep breaths or stretch so that I can get myself to stay calm and truly stay in the front part of my brain versus what we call the flipping the lid and going to the back part where we're in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And the fascinating thing is one of the studies done around 2011 from the psychiatry research, their neuroimaging, they talk about mindfulness practice leads to increase in regional gray matter density. And what was really cool about the study is they showed significant increases in the left hippocampus when participants, they did a very specific kind of mindfulness. Participants did eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it's a course that John Kabat-Zinn actually created. Um, But they found that when they did that, they saw the changes in the gray matter. Now, part of this too is the contraindicated piece of of it is that if somebody is suicidal, having psychotic episodes, they're delusional or hallucinating, then mindfulness is definitely not what you want to use for them. Um, But there's all kinds of different ways that mindfulness, you know, we now see through various research that it improves sleep, it helps um, stress reduction, they, you know, reduce blood pressure, depression, it improves attention and focus, because your body's not so on alert all the time. It improves um, emotion regulation, compassion, you're more able to respond to things versus react to things. And I'm going to say part of mindfulness too, I'm going to back up a second is making sure your teenager is getting the right amount of sleep too because that also impacts that stress and anxiety level if they're not. And I know our our school systems aren't all set up to be that conducive regarding the amount of homework and everything that they've got to do or they start early. But due to that brain development, teens need between eight to 10 hours of sleep. And um, excuse me, And that melatonin is released like two hours later in teens and adults. So that goes back to why teens often want to stay up late and sleep late, that it gets re-regulated again when they're, um, you know, later in life, when they're more in their 20s. But during this teenage year, adolescent year, they typically, that is a different thing, which I know is a sore spot for many parents. (laughs) when they want to stay up late. And then they're like, I don't understand. They're now grumpy and stressed out. And it's like, yep, they need the sleep and they need to be able to, to sleep impacts the memory. It impacts um, 
the integration of what they've learned for the day. And then that's also, again, being able to incorporate mindfulness into a teen's life can help them fall asleep at night versus sitting there staring up at the ceiling and ruminating on things because they know how to do the deep breathing. They know how to listen to guided meditations and follow those things. You know, one exercise is, is the box breathing where you take four um, breaths or you count, you take a breath in, count to four, hold for four, exhale for four, and then hold for four again. That's like what the SEAL Navy training does is called box breathing. Thank you for sharing even just an intervention that we can easily integrate, not only with teens, but even with adults. I, I like the simplicity of box breathing. Um, one thing that stood out to me in what you said was that mindfulness increases compassion. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine, particularly for teens, there's this idea not just about compassion for others, but then compassion for self Correct. and how much that's that could be kind of an antidote to that perfectionism to shooting all over yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and, and saying things to self that are really mean instead of practicing some grace and self-compassion. Yeah. And there's, there's actually a really good meditation that I teach not only my teens, but I do my adults too. Then you may be familiar with this. It's the loving kindness meditation. And that's a huge one that really does help people open up self-compassion for self because you start out with you know you and then you start to, you grow out to other people somebody maybe you don't have a good relationship with somebody that you don't know then it can expand out into the world the community but all of that practicing can help build into one still being very mindful and in the moment and drawing that inward where you're coming from your heart and then breathing that out into the world as well. Absolutely. Uh, that's a meditation that I have used with clients, and it's one that I do myself, and I'm glad that you bring that up. Again, I think these interventions are helpful for clinicians listening because sometimes I think we can almost get stuck in session. We get kind of accustomed to doing things a certain way and want to have more in our toolbox. Yeah. So if we, you know, to fall back then to go to the cognitive behavioral piece of it, you know, if a kid, kind of like what I was saying earlier, if a, if a kid is coming in and like, I'm never going to be able to find a date, you know, and you start to explore that, it's, it's beginning to go backward. And it's like, wow, so how did you, you know, develop your friendships that you have now? And you're helping them bridge like where they've been very successful in relationships when they've asserted themselves. And then you're bridging that to where they are now and saying, when you got the skills. So what would happen, you know, if you tried this over here with this person or explore like, what would you imagine that would look like? So they can start to see it's like, oh, I do have these skills. Or sometimes, you know, it's like what we keep talking, I'm laughing about because it's like, oh, you're shitting all over yourself again. Bringing those even forward, just to bring the awareness forward with kids can be very, very helpful because they're in that automated loop so often that they don't have that awareness. And then once they start with that awareness, they're like, oh, (laughs) I caught myself, Nicole. I shit it all over myself about three days straight. And then I said, that didn't work for me. And then I started to say, what am I doing? What's the next step that I can do? Or, oh, it's okay for me to ask for help. That doesn't mean I'm dumb or I'm never going to be able to get it. It just means I don't understand this specific lesson in chemistry or math or whatever class they may be in. And then it's also, again, going back and really helping the parents, you know, finding out like what they're saying to the kids about their academics. And oftentimes for, for many of my parents, they're like, we're telling them if they get a C and above, we're good with that. 
but they keep coming back and they're like, oh my gosh, you know that I didn't get a, I didn't get an A or B. Mom's going to be so mad at me or dad's going to be so mad at me. And so having a family session sometimes can even help like, but that's not what your parents are saying. The filter you have that you're hearing it through, you're taking it from one thing and you're making it something totally different. And so it's helping the kids and the parents really bridge that gap as well so that they can see, oh, mom and dad don't have this expectation that the only way they're going to love me or my self-worth is totally dependent upon the grade that I get or the the medals that I get through whatever extracurricular activity that I'm doing. It sounds like clarifying some of the belief systems and then offering alternative interpretations. Absolutely. And there's a lot of that because we know that parents are going to bring in whatever they haven't necessarily worked through. And that's going to impact that relationship they have with their kid. And so if they come in and they're wanting support for their children, this is a beautiful opportunity to help them switch and change and um, un let go of old beliefs that then get brought into that relationship. And then everybody's like, wow, I didn't even realize this is what I was saying or what I even thought about it. But now that we're talking about it, I remember hearing that and it, it was hurtful. And so there's an opportunity for people to start to shift. And then you just watch the, you know, the teenager go, oh, okay, I'm not, I don't need to perform for mom and dad. It's like, no, you get to be you. This is your journey. Allow yourself to unfold. When you have an adolescent in the room who has really high anxiety and tends toward anxious ruminations and perfectionism, and they're very early in this, um, you know, they've, they've just mm -hmm. come in for therapy. What are some of your go-to interventions, either pulling from CBT or mindfulness? So one of the big things that I do is I just reflect back what I'm seeing in their nonverbals. So if they come in and their foot is shaking like 90 miles an hour, I'm like, wow, did you notice that your foot is just bouncing up and down on the floor? And did you feel that the floor was shaking? Oh, uh-uh. Did you notice that you're sitting at the edge of the seat? It's okay to go ahead and sit back in the chair if you want to. So just sometimes this the noticing of the body posture and doing it in a compassionate way. It's again, raising that awareness of how that shows up a lot in nonverbals where they don't even need to be saying anything can help them recognize that. And again, dropping them out of their head down into their body. If I've worked with them, maybe a couple sessions, I may actually start the session if they're coming in and they seem really frazzled and I ask them, you know, how are you right now on that scale of one to 10? I say 10 being a panic and you want to run out my door, one being your calm as a cucumber, where are you at? And if they're above a five, then I, I invite them into like, are, you know, are you all right? If we just kind of pause for a moment, maybe do, I call it like the clock where they visualize, you know, like, tell me the number you are at. And then, okay, now slowly, I want you just to take that number. Let's say they're at a seven. I want you to tell me when you get that number down to a six. And then we may sit there for a little bit in silence and they can be twitchy and move in. They're like, okay, I'm at a six. I'm like, great. Now I want you to raise that up to an eight. Now I want them to begin to notice they have the ability to change how they feel and how they manage that stress or that emotion in that moment. 
And then eventually, you know, we get, okay, now when you're down to a six, let's bring it down to a five. Just remember to continue to breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. A lot of just small little things can help a kid truly enter fully into the office. I'm like, well, we had your head earlier today. Now we've got your full body along with your head. And then they can smile. They're like, yeah, I'm better. Okay. And if that's too much, so for again, for some kids, they are so extremely anxious trying to sit in quiet. It's too much. Then I'm like, okay, do you notice the fan that's going on up above? And do you see the different cars that are going outside? What colors do you see right now in my office? What do you smell in my office? I'm going to engage the five senses and see where they're at. So it's still the getting them into their body, into the room and just doing it in various manners. So to me, it's once I kind of do the the intake and I get a little more information about who they are and what's really going on, and then I just kind of pull out of various things and see what works for them. And sometimes it's going to work really well, other times not so much. So I just keep you know playing around with techniques. Thank you for sharing some of the things that are in your toolbox. Um, when it comes to psychoeducation, uh, how do you explain anxiety to adolescents and to their parents in a way that they can grasp if it's really kind of a new concept for them? So oftentimes, you know, we, our DSM, right, is the Bible for us clinicians. And so I will show them the, the DSM. I'm like, here it is. But here's what it looks like. So, you know, I will describe, so I use their words oftentimes that they have stated during an intake session or two. And I'll say, when you say this, this, or this, you're really worried about what people are thinking about you, or you struggle to to do that presentation. I may normalize that for them in the sense, like, that's a pretty normal fear, but it's, it becomes an issue if it's impacting your daily living, where you struggle with taking those tests, and now you've got this thought loop that, oh, I can't do this. So I, I take the examples or things they've told me, and then I put it back, and like, this is what this means for anxiety. And then what does your body do? You know, do you get upset stomachs a lot? Yeah, or headaches? Yeah, yeah, get those. Or I just feel, you know, all shaky or queasy, like I got butterflies in my stomach. That that be the example of how you physically show, you know, the nervousness. And then I explore some of that with the parents because, again, if they may not even have the awareness that they have that themselves, and I'll say, does that sound familiar with any other family members, or does that run in the family? It's like, oh, I guess I do that. I do that a lot. You know, I say yes all the time when I really mean no because I'm so worried about what they're going to say back to me or that they're not going to like me. And now we've start to see this family pattern and we see, oh, beautiful. So now that we know that information, we can unlearn it. And now the kid doesn't think like, oh my gosh, it's all me. There must be something wrong with me. It's like, no, we got a lot of learned things going on here that we're just going to unlearn. It's also exploring what some of those sleep patterns are, making sure that um, there are boundaries in place especially with electronics. There's a lot of comparison-itis that happens when people are looking on their social media and kids wanting to text one another, call one another in the middle of the night because they've had a bad day, bad moment. And it's like, you need your sleep. So you may need to actually, I, I call it like confiscate in a way, <laughs> the kids' um, telephone so that they're not in the rooms. And the pushback I will often hear from families or kids is like, but that's my alarm clock. I'm like, hey, you know, you can actually go to the store and for about five, ten dollars you can actually uh, get those things much cheaper now. It's just a digital clock and then there's no, it takes away the arguing of having the phone in the room or not in the room. 
also for parents focus on kind of what your teenager is learning and how they're learning it, like their study skills and their processes. It's not up to the parent to manage that for them, but just to sometimes I call it because again, if I go backward here, I get a little rushed in my own little thinking. Um, some of the kids, they underestimate how long something is going to take them. And so then I say, well, how long did you think that was going to take you? I thought it was going to take me a half hour. And it's like, well, actually time it the next time and see how long does it take you. And it may take them an hour. So then what happens, they get stressed out if they're underestimating and they're trying to put too many things on their plate versus slowing it down. And then other times they overestimate. It's like, wow, I got that done really quick. Now they can start to learn, oh, okay, I don't need to procrastinate or stress out about it because I have things in place for how this works. And then again, make sure there is downtime, unstructured time in their schedule, the family schedule, where you guys can lay around, you can go play outside, you can go take a walk, whatever, but it's not school related, work related, maybe extracurricular activity related. It's like they need to have something out there. Regarding like psychoeducation, one of the big things that I see often with families, it's they still see their teenager as uh, this kid who's in elementary school where they've needed to come in and kind of rescue or fix things like they needed them more at that age versus, as we know, adolescents are trying to push away from their parents and do things on their own. But if a parent comes in and tries to do a lot of the rescuing and fixing, one, that typically causes a lot of conflict with the teenager. Two, it typically increases the stress level. And kids can sometimes internalize that, again, that filter, and say, I must be stupid. I can't do this. Why are they standing up for me? Or why are they saying that they don't trust me? So it's remembering to take your fixing hat off as the parents. And this is what we do as clinicians, right, is really helping the parents. Like, take the, take the I got to fix it, problem solve it for my kid, and listen to them. Reflect back to them what's going on. And when that happens, now your kid's going to feel more heard. And it also takes the stress level down for the parents. I know sometimes they're like, but I, I see them struggling. It's like, yes, but are they in danger? And if they're not, then it's like, unless they ask you for that help, you can say, hey, would you like my help? And if they say, nope, I don't want it, then don't. Let them let them figure that out and do what they need to do to resolve whatever that issue is. Maybe it is talking to the teacher because they don't understand something. Maybe they need to work through a conflict with a friend or a peer. Just listen to them. And remember to ask your teen, what did you hear me say? Because their logic box, their inner filters are going to be different than that adult's inner inner filters, their logic box. And I know, again, that is where a lot of that confusion happens and frustrations happen. And as a parent, catch your kid doing well. Praise them. That doesn't go away from a child to an adult. When we are caught doing well and we get that positive feedback, it can feel so loving and so welcoming. It doesn't mean you need to validate every single thing that your kid is doing. But if your child struggles with um, 
like I've got to perform to be loved or I got to do this. It's just catching them like, wow, thank you so much for helping out around the house. I just so appreciate that. Or I love how you and your brother and sister were getting along or it's just so much fun to spend time with you. I just love us hanging out and just chilling. It's really fun to do that with you. And if you're a parent and you're getting triggered specifically by something your kid is doing, your teen's doing, get curious about what that is for you. Because that may be something that you haven't, um, that the parent hasn't actually worked through. And that's totally going to impact that parent-child relationship. And as we said earlier, Beth, when we were talking about words matter, pay attention to how you're actually communicating to your child because what you role model and what you do, those kids, teens, they suck it up. I know, especially for girls, one of the biggest things, if a parent talks about, oh, I can't eat that because it makes, it will add 10 pounds to my thighs or, oh, I'm so stupid because I forgot to ask, you know, so-and-so when he needed to get this task done at work, your kids pick up on that. So if you're putting yourself down, the parents putting themselves down, that teen just role models, mimics the same thing. And I know, again, one of the big issues for girls is eating and body image. And I know that there is some of that with boys as well. But it's making sure you show self-compassion to yourself. And then you're teaching that same skill to your teenager as well. As you discuss this more, I can hear how you're basically suggesting that mindfulness is kind of the box or the frame, if you will. And then cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of the the tool within the box, I guess, that you're being held and grounded by the mindfulness that allows you to have that space to uh, gently challenge, to check the facts, to look at some of the underlying belief systems and how that's resulting in um, perhaps an unpleasant feeling. It sounds like that approach not only has been effective with teens, but also with their parents. Um, What are some examples that you have from your Um, experience, like actually in the room that you'd be willing to share, of course, um, being mindful of respecting client privacy, but just how you've kind of seen this come up in the room. Yeah. So I can basically, due to confidentiality, I can combine a lot of different cases together. So again, teens don't typically ask for therapy. Some of them do. Um, They're like, hey, I need some support. But often what I find is the initial piece of it is a parent comes in, they see that their high achieving, excelling daughter is just really doing really well, but just like, man, they can't seem to cope with this stuff. And the more that I explore what's going on with that teenager, and then I'm talking with the parents, often what I find is there is one or two, maybe one or both parents, they don't give themselves a break. There's not a lot of self-compassion for themselves. And so when I reflect that back, I'm like, hey, I just noticed that you did da-da-da-da-da or whatever. You said this about yourself or you got frustrated about this. And like, how often does that happen? All of a sudden, like this light bulb moment goes on for a parent and they're like, oh, well, I can so easily do this for my kid and tell them that, you know, they're doing really well and that I love them really a lot, yet they hear and see me beat myself up over and over throughout the evening when we're together or I get really easily frustrated with them and I keep telling them it's not about them. It's, it's about what's going on in my life yet I don't take care of me. And I know that's really notorious for, for women in general, but especially moms, that self-care piece. 
And when all of a sudden the moms start to be like, you know, I'm going to tell my kid, you know, for the next half hour, I'm unavailable. I'm going to go take a walk or I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to, you know, on Saturday for the two hours, I'm going to go hang out with my own friends and, you know, be away from the family for a little bit. Now they're role modeling for both their son and their daughter, how self-care matters, how yes, they love them as parents, but also they're more than parents. They love their children, and yet it's like they've got to take care of their own human self first. And then then their son and daughter carry that then because when they're in their own relationships, friends or dating, they are able to say, hey, not tonight or not this weekend, you know, I'm just going to chill with my family or I need some quiet time. And if their friends kind of balk at that, they can let that go because they see that with their own family. They see that with their own parents. It continues to amaze me at times the the amount of love and care parents have for their kids that they just, that's their own blind spot. They don't see how they're doing that to themselves. And then unconsciously it gets projected onto their teenager where they so want the best for their teen and yet they're not doing it for themselves. So it becomes like this win-win um, in the end, because I've watched a lot of, again, I work mostly with girls and, and, and women, but the mother-daughter relationship begins to shift because all of a sudden mom is more gentler or mom is setting more boundaries with the daughter or her kids or with her friends or at work. And the daughter is seeing that. She's like, I so just admire my mom because she stood up to so-and-so today. It was just amazing. And now your daughter gets to see that. And so she can do that for herself now in different relationships. And then when families have just quiet time, right, that unstructured time, It's like it doesn't need to be filled with TV or phone calls or videos or whatever. It's I get to practice just downtime, the unstructured time. That unstructured time is so important because parents, they get to take that deep breath. The kid is taking a deep breath and it's it's just removing the external noises that don't need to happen or we we as humans, we do like structure. And I know for those who are a little more prone to being anxious, I know myself, I do like structure. I like to plan things out, but it's not getting so rigid with what that structure is because that's where it's going to turn into really unhealthy behavior. If they're so rigid and inflexible and unstructured and time allows you to breathe, to have space and you can truly decompress and I know for this would be a whole different um, topic that you'll have on there, but it, especially for HSPs, highly sensitive persons, this is huge. To regulate your system, you need downtime. That's why I'm such a big proponent of mindfulness and quiet time. Yep, you can still be a healthy, striving, high achiever, doing things, loving things, having your passion, and have the mindfulness and have quiet time. It's not an either or, it's a both and. I like that you also brought up that element of highly sensitive people and how that would impact the experience of anxiety, knowing that often highly sensitive individuals are more likely to have symptoms of anxiety or depression, partially because they're so aware of the world around them. Um, Are there any special kind of treatment considerations that you have when working with teenagers that are highly sensitive? 
Well, the first thing, right, is to talk about what it even means to be highly sensitive, because there's still so much education. I know Dr. Elaine Aaron has been doing that research since the 90s, and she's, I mean, she's got incredible books that are out there and information that's out there, but so many people still don't know it. And big portion of my clientele are HSPs. So when they start to recognize that, then typically what happens is the, no, that's not me. No, I don't need that because somehow it becomes, there's a deficiency with me. I don't want to be sensitive. I don't want to um, need more downtime because that means it's a weakness. And we look at it and I'm like, oh, let's, we got to reframe that because that's a strength because you are so tuned in with other people because you do tune into that environment. You have the ability to see things and hear things that others don't catch on to. It also means you've got to really nurture you and take care of you. So it doesn't burn you out because you're trying to do everything for everybody else. And again, that that also does go back to the family of origin. If there's a lot of trauma, they're definitely more prone to anxiety and depression. If we're talking about healthy support systems and healthy families, then it's just more of just them recognizing what are you telling yourself and embracing these beautiful traits of being able to process to the depth that they do. And that's, again, why that mindfulness and downtime are so important because there's so many things firing up in the brain (laughs) that they definitely need some of that downtime to be like, oh, that was going on. I Physically for me, I know if I have been very intense in doing something for work or in a therapy session and it was really intense, I can physically feel it in my body. Like I'm like, whoo, I need to take a moment to just clear everything and kind of shake it out because you, I can just physically feel it. And that's where that self-care comes in. To me, again, that's what that mindfulness practice is as part of the self-care. When it comes to addressing anxiety with adolescents and with their families, obviously it's taken a long time for them to develop different belief systems or ways of thinking that are causing them distress how do you position it with families about kind of what to expect in improvement and to not jump into the kind of stereotypical black and white thinking of like, oh no, I'm feeling anxious, therefore none of this is helping. And I'm right back where I was before. <laughs> that sometimes is almost like in every session. But Nicole, I don't like this. And I'm like, I know, let's ride the wave together. Where are you at right now? Right. And it is reminding them that it's a wave. And that they will come back to shore. So I do a lot of um, visualization with them, like giving them images. And I normalize, you know, with therapy in general, telling clients, like, sometimes things will get worse before they get better because you're actually dealing with them now. Whereas you didn't beforehand or you didn't know how to beforehand. And so now we're going to bring these things and we're going to put them out in the open. We're going to talk about them openly. So that can definitely intensify the feeling of anxiety or the, the, the tightness in your body or the sweaty pits, whatever it may be. And it's like, that's normal. Because your brain is like, we don't want to be here. This is this is uncomfortable. And it's like, we're going to lean more into that, knowing that it's not going to to kill us. It's really not going to, yeah, you're not going to die from the discomfort. And I think sometimes when a teen is in that moment, they can feel like, well, I'm going to die because this is so intense. It's like, no, that's what the brain, your thoughts are telling you. And it's remembering just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's true. 
I think that's another big piece is not over identifying with all the thoughts that we have coming through. We've got thousands of them, hundreds of them every single day. And it's like, I can choose to grab onto that, hold onto that, really examine that thought, carry that with me, let that impact my emotions. Then I can do a behavior that goes with it or I can let it go. So I give the imagery of, you know, thoughts are like on a leaf going down a river or your thoughts are like the cloud in the sky and you just let them go by. So whatever may work for that teen or even the adult so they can start to see it's like I'm more than my thinking. I'm more than my thoughts. It sounds like for you it involves a lot of um, psychoeducation, but then reinforcement so that these themes really stick because they're probably so different than what they're accustomed to. Absolutely. And I think that's with any therapy. We, you know, when we do the psychoeducation and then we're pointing out kind of like, when you said this, does that remind you of this? And you're kind of helping the client sometimes tie that together. Yes, you're still pulling stuff from the client in that sense, like you want them to come up with these things of what's working and what's not. But it's also we do need to help reinforce when they're making those changes because they don't they don't know what they don't know. Right. We all have our own blind spots. And so when we see them making changes or I love when the teens come in, I'm like, oh, my gosh, Nicole, I had you in my head and I was going down this path with, you know, telling myself I couldn't do it. And you were saying in my head, well, sometimes I can. Sometimes I can't. Let's see what happens with the other side of it. And I felt really good because I did it and I rode the wave and I made it through. And so to me, I tell them like, sweet, if I'm in your head, then we're good to go, right? And I kind of laugh with them knowing that they're making those improvements because they're embodying the changes we're doing in session to outside of the session. And it's the same thing when parents come in and like, wow, I'm seeing a difference in my kid. They seem calmer. We're actually having more conversations versus arguments. And then I ask the parents, well, what are you doing differently? They're like, well, if I start to get frustrated, I tell them like, hey, I need to maybe go take a time out for a second because I just got really mad about this and I got to figure out what's behind that. And so then there's open dialogue that starts to open all of that up for the families. And it's just a beautiful thing to watch these shifts because each each party is beginning to take responsibility for how they participate in that relationship. And I think more than anything, when they start to feel so empowered that they're more than their thoughts, that they really can do this differently, that they start to see that in all their relationships. And there may be some relationships that they've, especially for teens, you know, it's a big time where there's a a lot of change of relationships and grief can come up with that. But recognizing it's like, wow, if that friendship is not a give and take and I feel worse about myself or it stresses me out more than anything that when they're no longer in that friendship or they do more time limited within that friendship, it's like, oh, I feel really good and my stress level has gone down and I'm not worrying so much about this other person because they keep putting this stuff on me and, well, I don't even take it anymore. I say, you know, you may need to go get some other help because I'm unable to help you on this. You just watch them start to take their own power back, and it's a beautiful thing to witness. I'm really glad you brought that up today. Um, Not just when things are uncomfortable and when they're painful, but then when things start to get better and how special that is for us as clinicians to get to witness. I can hear how much passion you have for working uh, in this space, uh, particularly with girls, with teens in general, and also with, with women, and trying to help heal that anxious thinking so that 
they're kind of unlocked to live a life that's more peaceful and more joyful. Well, absolutely. And I mean, I fully believe there's so many of the girls that I work with that just, it it does, it excites me because they have these big ambitious dreams. And if it's run by fear, the odds of them being able to go after that really diminishes because there's going to be burnout. There's going to be health issues. There's all these other things that are obstacles that are going to come up due to it's fear-based and it just, it's going to deplete them. When they feel empowered in themselves, when they feel confident, because again, we all know that when you take action, anxiety doesn't like that in the sense that it's like, yeah, no, I'm running my life, dude. You get to take a back seat. You know, we kind of sometimes externalize the anxiety and I tell like, I'm going to take a back seat here, that they get to see they actually have more power than what they were giving themselves credit for. And then they go after these big dreams and then they're sharing that. It's like, well, again, they're our future. They have all these incredible ideas. This is how that brain is being developed with novel ideas and learning new things and thinking outside of the box stuff that psh, never would have thought of, right? And yet they are doing it. So it's giving them the tools that they need so they can thrive, not survive or exist because that's, that's not living. That truly is just, it's exhausting, especially if they've got these ruminating thoughts or the, I call it this, the hamster in the wheel going around and they're like, I just want it to stop. It's like, well, here's some ways for that to happen. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, Nicole, and for kind of illuminating how this can actually be used in, in the room. Um, what are some of your favorite resources? I know you mentioned a couple of um, individuals and experts and also books. Um, why don't you restate those for us and also any other resources you can recommend for our listeners? Absolutely. So again, for parents, especially, and the teens too, there's sometimes I pull this book out. It's the Teenage Brain. It's the Neuroscientist Survival Guide to Raising Adolescent and Young Adults by Dr. Frances Jensen with Amy Ellis Nutt. She's got great studies in there. So if the teens roll their eyes and they're like, oh, substances don't matter, whatever, you know, I can drink all the alcohol I want. You can pull this out and show them kind of what it does do to these studies, which is really quite fun because they're like, oh, fine. You know, there's there's a ton of different, and I'm looking, I don't have my mindfulness books, but there's there's a lot of great mindfulness books for teens and there's different exercises in them. Like, you know, if they get really anxious, sometimes holding an ice cube, they can feel like that pain temporarily in their hand and then it melts away. Um, just ways for them to come back into the moment. And how about for our listeners who'd like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, Nicole, how can they do that? So there's two ways. If they want to hear um, more, I've got various podcasts called Launching Your Daughter Podcast, and that's on my clinical website, which is NicoleCBurgess.com. They can go out there and listen to different interviews that I've done with various authors, but it's all specifically around the teenage years, and they can use that as a resource for parents too. If they want to just get a hold of me to do some consultation, things like that, they can actually go out to my coaching website, which is Nicole burgesscoaching.com and they can send me an email from there or get in touch with me that way. Wonderful. Um, thank you so much again for joining us, Nicole. I think you've offered not only some clarity into the topics of mindfulness and CBT and how they work, but then practical information about how we can actually implement them. Um, thank you again for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Beth. It was a pleasure. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, 
please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.